Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Yo! Welcome into the House of L podcast. I am Lawrence Holmes. Thank you so much for hanging out with me on the podcast today. We are brought to you by Zenny. Zenny's our new name sponsor for the House of L podcast. Go get yourself some glasses. Zenny.com. I'm ordering my frames as soon as I am done with this episode of the podcast. And I'm going to look funky fresh. They are the official eyewear partner of the Chicago Bulls and apparently of this podcast. So shout out to Zinni. I have a great episode for you this week. My man Dave Ross is one of the most interesting people that I've come across in my time in working in media. And you will find out directly why that is the case when you hear him talk about his life and his experiences and his 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 experience in media very interesting dude very interesting dude before you do that i know you're listening to this podcast i don't know if you listened to the episode that maddie lee put out the ryan divish episode I really think it's important that you listen to that episode. I know that you were like, oh, well, the Kevin Mather thing happened a little while ago. Go listen to it. If you only go listen to the intro that Maddie did, the the stuff that's going on in America right now when it comes to harassment and these anti-Asian attacks that we're seeing in the United States. It really touched her in a personal way. And I was really proud of her for using the platform to share her feelings about a lot of this stuff. So I'd really appreciate it if you went back and you took a listen to that at your leisure. But it's an important piece of podcasting that she did. And this is not her regular genre. She's a writer by trade. And I'm, I'm grateful that she shared what she's going through right now as an Asian American, as a Chinese American in particular, what she's going through right now. So please go back and listen to the Ryan Divish episode uh, of the podcast because I think it's really good. It's really important and offers a perspective and point of view that I think we all could bear using and, and hearing. So thanks to Maddie Lee for an excellent episode of the podcast. Before I get to Dave Ross and before I get to th- these crazy stories that you're going to hear in today's episode, I wanted to take time to shout out our sponsors on the podcast. You heard me talking about Zenny. 
David Hochberg is one of our sponsors as well. If you are buying a home or refinancing a home, David Hochberg is the guy that you need to hit up. 855-56-DAVID. He has helped me with a bunch of real estate projects. And he's just someone, he's good to like bend an ear. Like if you have some questions about some things, he's good. And if you're thinking about buying a house and you're like, I need to get a letter before I go see some of these places, he can get you pre-approved. So 855-56-DAVID, 56david.com. I swear by this guy. Like he's the only, the, like the only finance guy that I work with. And he can help you, I promise. I promise you, he can help you. So 855-56-DAVID or 56david.com. Homeside Financial is an equal housing lender. NMLS number 1124061. We're also brought to you by Brendan Stadzinski, who is a State Farm agent in Lincoln Park. Whether it's auto, home, life, pet insurance, he's got you covered. And speaking of pets... For every quote that you get from Brendan, State Farm is going to donate $10 to Paws Chicago. So you can help out the, the pets just by getting a quote, not even signing up. It's, it's a big deal to him, which means it's a big deal to me. You can check out his site, chicagosf.com. Write that down. Just go get a, a pen and write it down, chicagosf.com. That's all. You don't even need to know the phone number because it'll be right there for you on the website, chicagosf.com. So we thank all of our partners that are involved in what we do at House of L. I met Dave Ross. It's got to be seven years ago. Wow. So I went to go work at 120 Sports back in 2014 like late in 2014, it was right after I left. I actually left Channel 5 to go work at 120 Sports. And Brooks Boyer hit me up and said, hey, we're doing this project. I think that you'd be good at it. It's a national network, but we're going to broadcast in Chicago. And I said, okay, I guess I'll come take a look at what you got going on. And he said, you know, I would never offer you anything that wouldn't better your life. And I was like, oh, all right. So I went to go check it out. They were broadcasting out of a studio, the the old Rosie O'Donnell studios that were on off of Randolph Street. So I went over there and I checked out. I'm like, what is it that you're doing? And they said, oh, well, we're going to we're going to stream shows (laughs) like what? This is remember, this is 2014. We're going to stream shows. We're going to put together a sports show where we talk about stuff at two minutes at a time. So that's where the 120 came from. And I'm like, okay, well, where's it going to be broadcast? And he's like, the internet. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And you're going to do that on the internet, are you? And then I found out the backing of it, like the fact that it was connected with the ACC network and that it was backed by Major League Baseball. And I said, okay, when's this show that you want me to do? And he goes, well, it's a morning show. I'm like, oh, God. Because at the time, I was still hosting the nighttime show at the score. 
So what happened is, is that I had to, I, I said, I'll try it. Like, I want to try it for three months. <laughs> I want to try it for three months. And they said, okay. And they, it's the first time that this has ever happened in my career. I got a signing bonus. Because I'm sure that they were like, let's try and keep this dude. The show aired every day. We went on the air at 7 o'clock Chicago time, which meant that we had meetings starting at 5 a.m., which meant that I had to get up at 4 a.m. after doing a radio show until 10 o'clock at night. It wasn't great. There were those nights, because we still had the White Sox at the time, there were a lot of night games in the summer, and that made it easier because sometimes I'd be done at 6.30 or whatever, and I had, like, a fairly normal life. So I tried it out, and I, I really enjoyed the process of what they were trying to build over there. So they had been doing shows at night. It had been Dave Ross, who you'll get to meet in a second, and Tyler Fulgham, who you can see on ESPN now doing all of the the sports betting and fantasy stuff. And Tim Doyle and Michael Kim was on at night. They had been doing all of this stuff for a little bit, and now they wanted to expand to the mornings, and my name got tossed into the mix, and I went and joined them. I had a great time there. 120 Sports eventually became Stadium, and then it got gobbled up by Sinclair. So, like, Michael Kim is still – he's over at Marquee doing what's called Stadium. But that's all – it all was birthed out of what 120 Sports did. Some really smart people over there. Jason Coyle. Like, the whole crew of people. I had really great producers. Shout out to my guy Sam. They took good care of me over there. They made it easy for me because they knew that I was sleep deprived and that I was doing the radio show and all of this stuff. So I meet Dave Ross. He's hilarious. Like Ross would, would come in, Saucy Ross would, would come in, and if if Michael Kim was out, or at the time it was me and Tyler or me and Dylan McGordy that were doing the show together, and if one of them had a day off, Saucy would, would do the show with me, and we hit it off. Like, we, we're similar age. He's a lot older than I am. But we're similar age. <laughs> and so some of the cultural references that he would drop on some of the younger cats, I would actually get. We seemed to get along, and I really enjoyed him. And then I started to find out more about him and find out, you know, this guy used to work in, in – D.C. like he was he was a sports anchor in D.C. that's where they found him but the story that I'm going to tell you in this episode goes far beyond just that and I know that I've already eaten up a lot of time but I just wanted to explain the television or I guess the streaming environment before we get to what the beginning of this episode is insane it's insane so here's the part that I left out Dave Ross is a Marine because you, you never, like, you, it's not past tense, right? You're always a Marine. Dave Ross is a Marine, 
And I've always wanted to talk to him about his experience of being a Marine. I shit you not, it is fascinating what he went through. He's a guy who served in the Gulf. You got to hear these stories. We'll get to the broadcasting stuff. It's in there, I promise. But the stories that he told me about being a Marine are amazing, and you need to hear them. So now that I've wasted your time, let's get you right up in here. My buddy Dave Ross, we call him Saucy on House of L. Man, I I have a Ricky Fowler joke, but I'll save it for later. Uh, <laughs> He's still out there? Is he still playing? Is he, uh, doing? he might not make the, the, the Masters this year, but um, oh, I'll, say, I'll save that for later on, man. <laughs> Before we start talking broadcasting, I want to know, like, what was it that pushed you to join the Marines? Wow. I'll tell you this, Lawrence. Uh, Great question. 18 years old, freshman at VCU with one of my buddies who's still one of my best friends, Ferdy Tolentino. And we had been out as freshmen tend to do and had a couple of illegal pops because we were only 18. And the commercial, Lawrence, came on TV in 1988 and said, if you've got what it takes to, 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 to be one of us, to, 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 the few, to, to, the proud, to, to, the Marines, and that sword comes out of the fire. I mean, I stood up and I saluted and Ferdy looked at me and he goes, you're crazy. And I go, I know, I got to do that. I literally am a product of good advertising. That commercial inspired me in a way I never knew that I would be inspired and instilled something in me that said, I got to do that. If that's what it takes to be the best, if those are the baddest badasses that are around, I got to push myself. I got to see if I can do this. And Lawrence, you know me well, I'm dripping wet, you know, maybe pushing a buck 45 in 2021. In 1988, you're looking at a 110 pound kid just out of high school. So I was by far the smallest recruit that they had had. And when I went to the MEP station, which is basically the recruiting depot in Richmond, Virginia, they got me on the scale and they said, okay, I signed the paperwork. I was, I was in the second I got there. And then the recruiter told me, you're going to go to Paris Island, South Carolina, but you're going to leave on February 10th. This is now around December, right before Christmas. He says, when you come back to, to, to go to Paris Island, you cannot be under 110 pounds or else we can't take you. Mm. So for a better part of a month, I ate and ate and ate and ate and ate and ate and ate. And then when I went back there, I weighed 110 and I made it. I never put on a pound, but I was the smallest recruit that they had. So I was the house mouse at Paris Island. So whenever they yelled house mouse, I had to come running to whatever they wanted. And they basically used me, Lawrence, not a big surprise here, as the guinea pig to say that if I could do it, there was no excuse for anybody else in my platoon uh, to not be able to do whatever physical challenge that we might be presented with in that day. So I, I learned early on, I saw the mentality of how my drill instructors were going to deal with me kind of in respect to the rest of the platoon to set the example, not because I was the biggest, but for the direct opposite, because I was the smallest. Do you have a military family background? My dad, not, not particularly, no, it, it caught most of my family, well, certainly my mother, by a tremendous surprise. And I can imagine friends, that it caught her by <laughs> surprise. 
Yeah, and and Lawrence, you know me. I, I'm I'll be brutally honest. You know what I mean? If I you, you that's why I like uh, the way we we vibe and the way we communicate. You're gonna be honest with me. I'm gonna be honest with you. The only time I've ever lied to my mother is when we were having dinner after I got back from the recruiting station, and I said at dinner, "I'm thinking about joining the Marine Corps," and then the the knives and forks kind of dropped. And my mother looked at me and she said, tell me you haven't signed anything. And I just looked away and shook my head. No, knowing it, I had already signed. I was gone. I was at the door. And I think before we could finish dinner, knock, 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 here's a, a Marine in dress blues standing at the doorway saying your son's made a great decision. So that No was, way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. So I couldn't tell my mother at that moment she wasn't ready to hear it. But I was already gone. And I, you know, that was my subtle way of trying to, hey, I'm thinking about joining. No, I'd already, once you sign, there's a saying in the Marine Corps, USMC, you sign the mother blanking contract, right? There's no take backs, there's no redos. There's no, you know what? I slept on it. Nah, nah, nah. Uh uh. Once you sign that contract, you've made a commitment to the Marine Corps for at least six years, which is what, what it was in my case at 18. So, you know, you make those decisions and sometimes they feel knee-jerk. Knee well, you you are now an adult in the government's eyes and you need to honor that commitment. But I got to tell you, looking back, and maybe it was a little bit rash and maybe it was a little bit impulsive, there's really nothing I wouldn't change about it. It, it You just meet some of the, the most real people that this country has to offer, at least on the East Coast, because Paris Island was the, you know, like the, the Mississippi was the demarcation line if you were a recruit to either go to Paris Island or go to San Diego. Boy, who wouldn't choose San Diego if you had the choice? But, uh, you know, I got to meet so many people from all across the East Coast that didn't look like me, that certainly didn't have the same interest as me. And you know that the lines from A Few Good Men about putting your life in somebody else's hands and having them do the same for you, that's real. That is what the Marine Corps is about. And uh, it helped grow me up. If, if I could ever have grown up, I think the Marine Corps certainly helped in that what was the hardest part about training? Oh my goodness. Uh, okay. Well, there's so many parts about basic training that still give me nightmares. Like really? I, the gas chamber. Oh yeah. The Lawrence, the gas chamber. Okay. And I, I try to tell this to civilians all the time. To, this experience that I had in the gas chamber is one unlike any other I've ever experienced in my life before or since. And that includes going to a war overseas. Now, my senior drill instructor, senior drill instructor, Staff Sergeant Zioli, yes, sir. Like, Staff Sergeant Zioli was the man, okay? So we're waiting to go into the gas chamber, platoon 1036, 1st Battalion, Paris. And he says to me, Ross, get up here. So I get up there, and I have to go in with a different platoon that I don't know, and they don't know me. And I remember as calm as day, once I follow instructions, you tell me to do something, and I don't tend to ask too many questions and that's kind of what they want in the marine corps you just follow orders so my staff started looking at me and he said ross you're going to be okay right and i said yes sir he said you're not going to die i said no sir and he said all right put your gas mask on i put my gas mask on i'm cool man i'm i'm good and now i'm the last recruit that goes into the gas chamber and what it is is literally it's just a small i don't know it's it's a small chamber okay they open up the door and everybody's kind of single file, you march in, but you have your hand on the shoulder of the recruit in front of you. Because once you get in there, it gets a little hazy and there's a CS canister of gas that's going off. 
but you're all in your full mop gear, which is, you know, your chemical, chemical suit, and you have your gas mask on. So you're good, right? You're okay. You feel comfortable. Until they tell you to take it off. And that, and again, I'm the last one in. So you know what that means. I'm going to be the last one out when this experiment is over. So I've got my hand up and they said, all right, put on Don and clear your mask. Okay, Don and clear. You suck in, you get the, the gas is actually inside your mask. And the exercise is to clear that out of your mask so that you don't panic in a wartime situation, which I would actually need that skill later on in life, unbeknownst to my 18 year old self. So the gas comes in, I immediately realize I can't breathe. You, I, I cannot explain this feeling to you to this day, but it felt like when I sucked in that my body rose. Like I was all of a sudden from five, eight to, to six feet, to six, two, to six, four. And I just felt like a cat just elongating my body because I can't seem to exhale. I can't seem to get my lungs to compartment and my brain to compartmentalize to get this gas out. And by that, you have to seal up the sides and breathe out. Okay, I, I got that in there. You still have the mask on. Then they literally tell you to discard your mask completely. And at that moment, once you do that, everything burns. I mean, I, I don't care if you've got a, just a nick on your nose or something in your eye or whatever, and you are crying, not of your own volition, but your body, is just burning anything. If there's a slight nick or whatever, it's gonna, you're gonna feel it. And now they've opened up the door from, again, I'm the last one in, so the door is right behind me, okay? And we're gonna go all out in a circular motion, but I'm the last one out. And so this, I have no sense of time of how long without my gas mask on that it took me to get out of that and then back into the open air. But I remember hitting the door. I remember seeing the light. Literally felt like the light at the end of the tunnel. And when I walk out, there's my senior drill instructor, Staff Sergeant Zioli, waiting for me. And you have to put your arms out because your equilibrium shot. And you're like just teetering. And people are falling. You're wheezing. You're throwing up. Because now you got the oxygen hitting you from the air. And your body is just discombobulated, completely shut down. And I remember, like, you feel like an airplane. And you're just teetering. And my senior drill instructor is going, Ross, Ross, breathe. And I, like, I, you always have to communicate when, when, when a drill instructor communicates to you, you have to answer back and I can't speak. And I'm just blah, I'm just wheezing and coughing and the whole bit. And he's like, you're gonna be all right. You're not gonna die. You're not gonna die. And I'm like, yes, sir. I'm trying to sound off. Well, remember, I'm with a different platoon. So now I'm instructed to go back to my platoon, which has not gone into the gas chamber yet. And they're looking at me and literally when I sit down and this is an open air now, I'm like, you know, like basically on a bleacher. Okay. And all my fellow recruits are like, Ross, are, are you okay? And I'm like, I can't speak. And I'm like, just give me a, give me a second. And I'm like radiating the CS gas off of me. And so they're, they're even in open air backing up from me. Now it's time for platoon 1036 to go in. So 1036, yes, sir. Everybody stands up. And they all line up in formation to go into the gas chamber. Well, I don't get up, Lawrence, because I've already gone in. So I sit, stay seated. And everybody else gets up and form, forms the line. And my senior looks at me and he goes, Ross, what are you doing? I said, sir. He said, that's an order. 1036, get up, fall in. And I'm like, 
no, sir. And I do not talk back. And I said, no, sir. And he said, what? And I said, no, sir. And he said, Ross, that is a direct order. Get up. So now I get up. I walk over. My whole platoon sees this. And here was the mental play that I didn't realize then. My senior is telling my platoon that Ross, the smallest guy, is going to do this twice to prove that you can certainly do it once. Now, I'm the last guy. And we're all lined up. I see the door open. We have to put our mask back on. Well, they're, they can all put their mask on. That's cool. They don't have any CS gas that's still resi the residue. Well, it's still in mine, okay? So right when I put it back on, I mean, Lawrence, my knees, I mean, everything. I just feel like my body is going to shut down. And my senior's looking at me and he goes, Ross, you're not going to die. And I said, no, sir. And he said, Ross, you're not going to die. And I said, no, sir. This recruit will die if you put him back in there. You can't say I. So you say this recruit. I'll never forget that moment as clear as day. Like I knew that I wouldn't make it out of there if they put me back in there. And still, when that door opened, I started marching with my hand on the shoulder in, on top of the recruit in front of me. And right as I was entering, he pulled me off. So the only person that would have ever known that I didn't go in for a second time is if he felt my hand come off his shoulder would be the recruit in front of me. But you want to talk about a mind game that he played on me in that moment was literally to test me to see if I would still follow orders, knowing that essentially I'm walking into my potential own death. And I was still willing to do that, knowing the consequence. And that lesson has stood with me my whole life. I didn't know. He knew he was going to pull me off and not make me go through twice. I didn't know that. And I've never been defiant, but I knew it. I knew it in my bones. I wasn't going to make it out of there. And he knew it, but still wanted to see if he could force me to follow orders, which I did. You said that you would find out later that that training paid off for you. So Big time. Was, this is when you were in theater, right? Yes, sir. At, at Operation Desert Storm in the uh, Persian Gulf War, uh, for those that are of a younger generation that might not remember uh, 1990-1991 after Saddam Hussein had occupied Kuwait. Uh, as, as a member of an artillery force out of Richmond, Virginia, Hotel Battery 314, we got activated. And I'll walk you through that scenario very quickly, Lawrence. This was Thanksgiving 1990. I'm with my family in Virginia Beach, and I'm watching the Redskins and Cowboys play football. Cowboys won 27-17. Emmett Smith had a hell of a day. So I'm having a great day, right? Phone rings. My sister at my sister's house, sister answers the phone. It's for me. I'm like, oh, who's calling me at my sister's house? 1990. No cell phones, none of that stuff. So I get up, uh, excuse myself from the dinner table, pick up the phone. It's my fraternity brother who says, my unit is called and we've been activated. And by the time, and I had a report within 24 hours. By the time I hung up that phone, again, I couldn't look at my mother in the eye. It's still, very emotional for me when I even think about that. That's why I remember that game so well and so distinctively. Uh, and she looked at me and she said, you got activated, didn't you? Because we all knew that the war was, there was a potential for a war. Saddam had occupied him in August. This is now November. And yeah, by the time I you know, sat back down at the dinner table, it was like quiet with the whole family, but it was time and I knew it. And it was, that was my goodbye to my family. They drove me back to Richmond, uh, and I was with my unit within 24 hours, and we were off to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, 
And then we were off from Camp Lejeune to Saudi Arabia. And when it flew into Bahrain, I'll never forget it, Lawrence. You fly in and now it's, you're basically locked and loaded when you get off the plane. And we got on a, on a double-decker bus. And what I remember the most about that was there are bullet holes all through it, all around it, right? And all I remember thinking is, oh, this is not the United States of America. Now we are in literally enemy territory. And this is our ally you know, as we fly into Saudi Arabia. But now we got to go and we got to get to the border of Kuwait quickly. I think it took us about two weeks. And from January 15th, I believe is the exact day when the airstrike started. So Lawrence, I would sit there at night, watch the B-52 bombers go over us, drop their bombs, just carpet bombing Kuwait where Saddam's forces had taken over. And then, boom, 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 boom. then they just come back over us, and this black smut would just kind of, kind of go through the sky and make everything black, no matter what time of day it was. It's one of the most surreal things. Waiting, and all we did was carpet bomb, carpet bomb, carpet bomb, night after night after night after night to soften the Iraqis up until we got the call that we're going in. And I, again, I'll never forget it. It's you know. Our CO calls us over and says, we're going in at first light tomorrow morning. I don't care what you hear on your armed forces radio. Again, there's no Twitter, there's no social media. This is, it's as, it feels primitive now, even looking back on it, the way even messaging went out. But he said, I don't care what you might hear on the radio. We're going in at first light and we're gonna cut the barbed wire because Saddam had basically done this uh, remedial, if you will, just barbed wire. Kuwait and Saudi to, to try to act like Kuwait is now part of Iraq. And uh, our FOs, our Ford observers, and our engineers went through and literally just ripped out the barbed wire and they had lined it with massive bombs uh, just, you know, underneath the ground. And so what they did was it was like a, like a shovel, like basically going like a snowplow, if you will, and just boom, 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 get rid of those bombs, clear a path, a lane, and then boom, artillery, here we come. And we just went in. And once we encountered the enemy, you spread out your artillery line and boom, now you're at war. And it, it's, it's just so surreal to look back at what, to me, an incredible job, Colin Powell, uh, Schwarzkopf, Bush, whatever your politics may be, that's for you to decide. But I am forever indebted to people like that that didn't make us fight with one hand time behind our back. They gave us every resource uh, to go in, do the job effectively, and then get out. So I was in country January. I was home by May after competing in a foreign war. And, you know, again, I, I don't want to pass judgment on any other uh, president or any other, you know, military strategy. But for that one, they couldn't have done it better. And literally, not just my life, but the life of a lot of other Marines and, and Army members and they, you name the personnel, were on the line. And they just did, to me, a remarkable job of game planning that, almost from a sports perspective, of X's and O's. To me, they Nick saved it. They, they just nailed it. I've talked to veterans about this. And I, we've probably had a couple of discussions about this. How were you changed by that experience? 
well, probably a lot of ways that I didn't even realize. But I, I mean, you know, I see what's going on today and there's so many conversations of race that, that go on in this country. I don't like them being held on Twitter because I don't think you can get to the real issues that face different groups in this country unless you have those conversations one-on-one. -on -one. And I served with, obviously, you know, not white, black, Hispanic, but also we had, we had an Iranian in our group, Abbas Aflatouni, and Bobby, as we called him, uh, great guy. And we were very different-minded people, but we had some of the most real, in-depth conversations about life in those deserts. And I had more conversations with, you know, one guy that I, that I served with was, uh, <laughs> let's just say he, he didn't like some of the cliques that he saw in the groups. And he, you know, he would say, you know, some of you white, uh, I don't want to use some of the terms, but he would call them out and say, if you get shot, I'm not going to save you. And I said, Gardner, that's BS, because I know you, you'd be the first one out there to save them, even though you might not see eye to eye. And I get it. You don't like them and they don't like you. And if it's for the color of their skin, that's really silly. But those remedial type of conversations led to some what I would consider breakthroughs where people could find the commonality that they had versus the differences of opinion. So, you know, in, in the Marine Corps, and I'm sure you know this, you know, we don't we don't say white, black, we say green, we say light green, dark green. I don't even know if they use those terms anymore. But those are the terms we used when I served. And the idea was when you wear this green uniform, I don't care what your color is, that doesn't matter. What matters is you bleed red. And if somebody gets shot, you got to save your brother. And I don't care what they look like and what you look like. We're all green and we're all in, the, in this thing together. And I it just, it was a real eye opener for me to just talk to my fellow brothers about life. And I loved it. I mean, I, I, I look back on those conversations in those times, literally with fires all around you. I, I, I could sit up at night and count over 140, I think it was one night, fires. Because Saddam just lit up the oil oil tanks in the, 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 the in the oil fields and just burned them because he wanted Kuwait to lose all their their valuable oil. It's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why we were over there in the first place. And we would sit there as we're literally just circled by fire and have conversations like this about life. And th th those people that I serve with will forever be brothers. Uh, I look at anybody that serves in the military, and I. Even if I don't know them, I'm going to respect the hell out of them for what they do because they know what I know. You know, the oath is one thing that you take when you join, but really it's the people. It, it really is. It gets down to the basic individuals that you serve with that probably come from all different walks of life. And at the end, you still have a common goal. And when you're serving that common goal, a lot of the, the, the BS goes by the wayside. And I think it changed me to hopefully for the better to realize that not everybody comes from the same backgrounds that, that you and I do. And yet we should be able to always find the positives in people and not always look for the negatives. And, and it feels like that today it's hard to do that because people are just so dialed into getting on their side and then not ever seeing another side. And that bothers me so much that people just can't say, well, what is it about us that unites us instead of what divides us? And I always think the military, at least when I served, did a really good job of trying to find common bonds versus things that might uh, keep us aside.
when you're done with your service to the Marines after the six years, was there ever a point where you thought about going career or were you like, I've, I've had enough. I've had quite enough of all of this stuff. Uh, I think I got out as a Sergeant, man, I, I tell you, I, I am so honored to have done that. Like to me, I, I look back and go, I did that like six years. I, I earned the E5. No, man, I was good. They wanted me to stay in. I mean, I enjoyed it. I, I just, I love people. I'm like you. I just like to talk to people. I'm interested. So I was always intrigued by the people that I served with. But, man, I wanted to get into sports broadcasting. I was like, man, I'm a sports guy. I mean, Lawrence, one more quick story about 1991, okay, sure. if I may go back. Sure. Now, remember, the, the ground war hasn't started yet. So every night, there's B-52 bombers going in. But we're in place. We're lined up ready to go once we get the order to cut that barbed wire and go through. Well, there's a little thing called the Super Bowl that's going to get played. And it's the Bills against Washington. Yeah, the Giants against the Bills, 1991. And I'm telling everybody for the months that that were over there that the Bills are better than the Giants. Are you kidding me? It's going to be Jim Kelly. It's going to be Thurman Thomas. The Buffalo Bills are going to win the Super Bowl. And I'm taking all comers. Who, Who wants some action? Let's go. And as you well know, I love a good debate. So I would debate anybody that wanted to hear me go, let's go. Well, I have almost forgotten about the Super Bowl at this point because we got other things right now that kind of take our minds off of things, sure. right? With this pending war. And we have a Navy doc, Doc Gregory. And uh, Doc comes up to me. This is in the, as we're still holding in position. He goes, Ross, I got some info. I said, what's up? And he goes, just wanted you to know because I know how much you've been talking about it. Uh, you were right. The Bills won the Super Bowl. The Giants missed the field goal. And in that moment, I went running up and down our gun line. And I was, I can't repeat the words I was using, but I was saying, I told all you. I told every. And, I, and they're like, I remember people just kind of putting their head down like, oh, there he goes. And I just wouldn't be stopped. You couldn't stop me. I don't care if Saddam Hussein himself had showed up in that moment. I would have gotten his face and let him know <laughs> that the Bills had won the Super Bowl. And I could not have been happier in that moment. I didn't care about the war. I didn't care about the Iraqis. I didn't care about anything. I just cared that I was right. And I told everybody, and they wouldn't listen, that the Bills won the Super Bowl. Okay, now the, the war starts. We go through, and all these things happen. And now the war's over. We're back in the rear, and it's... March, maybe April at this point. I can't remember how many months have passed. Same doc comes up to me. Because, you know, the docs aren't up in the front line. They just come up to help us out and somebody's sick, whatever. They're always in the back and the rear with gear. Doc comes back up to me, same doc. He goes, hey, Ross, I, I forgot to tell you something. I said, what's up? And he goes, I got that wrong. I go, what? Like, I don't even know what he's talking about. And he goes, oh, the Bills missed the field goal. The Giants won the Super Bowl. <laughs> Lawrence, you, you know what's great. You know never... what's great about this. What's great about this is there's going to be someone who listens to this to be like, "Hey, how is it that he didn't know for a month and a half <laughs> what had happened in the Super Bowl, not realizing that information and communication back in 1991 yes. was completely different from from what it was, and you were also, you know, fighting a war, so getting yeah. that that sort of information from back in the states was impossible. 
Lawrence, it's why I'll never trust the Navy. As long as I live, I know I support them, <laughs> but I don't have to trust them. I cannot trust them ever again. And I just looked at him and I said, Doc, this is a very big piece of information to get incorrect. Like just a one subtle difference of who missed the kick and who won. Like I don't even know any other other details of the game. You can't screw that up. You can't mess that up. But then in some weird way, for literally two months, I actually thought the Buffalo Bills had won a Super Bowl. Like I, I like there was no it wasn't like I doubted it or questioned it. Like, why would I question? He told me who won. So like I'm one of the few people that actually felt the thrill of victory for the Buffalo Bills. I might be the only person that's insane. in the world that actually knew what the feeling was that might, cause I lived in upstate New York, my dad, big bills fan like that euphoria for the bills. I, I know what it feels like. It was just, well, it was just fake. <laughs> I just didn't know at the time. So, so after you're done, you you know that this is where you want to place your energy. Yeah. Like you're a big sports fan. So what happens next? Like what how do you get from So yeah. Well, I go back to Virginia Beach, which is where I grew up after we moved from New York when I was very young, uh, to Virginia Beach. And I still had to fill out my commitment till 1994. I, I signed in 88. I got out of the Marine Corps in 94. So I'm kind of winding down those days. I'd gotten, I mean, my first job in TV, well, my first job in media was amazing. After I graduated college in 1992 from VCU, so I'm doing my last two years as a reservist in the Marine Corps, so just work one, one week in a month. So you have time to pursue other jobs. My sister, who lived in Cary, North Carolina, found in a newspaper ad. Remember, this is 1992. Whoever gets a job anymore in a newspaper ad? Nobody. Nobody. But it was nobody. It was for the Garner News. In, excuse me, it was for, in Lillington. I didn't even get to Garner. This is in Lillington, North Carolina. I don't know if anybody even knows where Lillington is. It's where Campbell University is. Yes. Uh, the Campbell camp, right? So it's not a, a metropolis by any stretch of the imagination. So my girlfriend at the time and I were going to go down to see my sister anyway, and she cut this out for me. She said, Dave, you should call it. Well, the guy's name was David Snipes, and he was the senior editor at the Lillington News. And I bring in, I call him. The number's there. He says, well, if you're in the area, come on by. I drive down to his office in Lillington, North Carolina. I walk in the door, introduce myself. He's probably a gentleman in his 60s, you know, a little older, a little. And here comes this young whippersnapper coming in there, ready to take on the world. And uh, he said, I'll tell you what, I like your energy. I'm going to offer you the job right here in the spot. If you want it, you get to write a weekly column on anything you want for sports, but I also need you to cover the news. So I took the job. I moved to Lillington, North Carolina, and I had to do like uh, the Kiwanis Club. <laughs> but I was the youngest person by like 60 years when I went in there and covered those. I covered city council, which would be like, you know, 10 people talking about what stoplight they're going to put up in the city. But then I got to... But then I got to write my column, Lawrence. I got to write my column on anything I would write. So I remember writing one in 1992, The Enigma That Is Lennox. It was about Lennox Lewis. I'm right. What, looking back, what person in Lillington, North Carolina, probably even knew who Lennox Lewis was, but I was so into boxing, I wrote this long, what I thought, glorious column. I'm trying to figure out who is Lennox Lewis. 
Is he the best heavyweight we've ever seen? Or is he some Englishman with a bad chin? I don't know, but I need to know about the enigma that is Lennox Lewis. And I thought that my people in my town of Millington, North Carolina needed to know too. It was so much fun. Oh my God. So when's, when's the point when you start to transition into broadcast? Well, I get, I go from Lillington and I get a job at the Garner news, which is now close to Raleigh. And that's now big time right now. I've made it to Raleigh, North Carolina, but still as a writer, still writing. I'm still doing my columns, which got me that job in Garner. Uh, but I'm really covering the high schools and the Garner is a pretty good tradition. They had Donald Williams. If you remember him, of course, the MVP of the final quarter for Carolina back in the day. Uh, Dean Smith was there, still there at Carolina at the time that I was there. I never got to interview Dino, but anything, if I wanted to talk to a Tar Heel, I'd had to go through Dean. Um, but those were still print days, right? Well, then I get an uh, offer from one of my best friends up in D.C., and he says, hey, I can probably get you an internship with the Washington Bullets, but it's going to be unpaid. Well, I jump at it. And now think of this, Lawrence. I've served in a war. I'm still finishing out my military contract. I've gone from Lillington, North Carolina to Garner, North Carolina. And now I'm going to take an unpaid internship at the age of 23, 24, whatever it might have been, somewhere right, right there. So I can go right for basically the bullets. And then they use my quotes from the post game in the Washington Post. I was basically getting... David Dupree and Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon. I was basically like a runner for them, if you will, from the post game. I'd go to the visiting team locker rooms. Those guys would be, you know, probably with Chris Weber, Juwan Howard, whoever for the Bullets at the time, Rod Strickland. I would be getting your David Robinson quote or your, your Dennis Rodman or your John Stockton or whoever that player was of that time. And so that really got me. Susan O'Malley was running the front office for, for the Bullets at the time before they, they became the Wizards. And that's when I really met people in D.C. and saw what that media life was like. And from there, I met Joe Yashroff, who Joe is still somebody that I cherish to this day, who was the senior producer at Fox 5 in D.C. And he offered me an unpaid internship. So I worked an unpaid internship with the Bullets, unpaid internship with Channel 5 in D.C., and worked at then Herman Sporting Goods, which is no longer around, just so I could pay my rent. So I could do non-paid work in sports because that's how much I loved it. And then from that, after working as an unpaid intern for Channel 5, they offered me a job, my first job, overnight writer, 2 a.m. in time, to write the morning sports for the anchors to read at 6 a.m. And then after I did that, I had to go out and field produce for a guy named Tony Perkins. Who's Tony Perkins? He only went on to Good Morning America to be, be the weatherman for them. Jim Acosta. I replaced Jim Acosta as Tony's field producer at Fox 5. Think of that lineage. Jim Acosta to me. I think he, he lost on the second go-around. And that's how I started. And still wasn't in front of the camera yet. This is 1995. I didn't get my opportunity to be on camera until 1999 when I started doing packages, TV term, for the morning show. And, you know, they were, they were like, you know, we just love your energy. We want to give you the opportunity to do some stuff on camp. And that's how it started. But, I mean, I served my dues, but I, I, I have no regrets. It's not like I look at, look at it and go, ah, oh, man, I should have gotten this. I should have gotten No, 
I was a late bloomer in TV because of the Marine Corps, but I loved every second of it. I always looked at it as an opportunity. Like you're giving me an opportunity. Yes, you're not paying me right now, but I know if I bust it and I do a good job, I know you will. I know eventually you will. And eventually it happened. And then I started on cam in DC in 1999 and until I left in 2013. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. What's your favorite moment from that time? And I know there's a lot. Like you're talking about a 15-year stretch where you're, you're a Virginia Beach boy that gets an opportunity to work for Fox <laughs> 5 in D.C. What was your favorite things that you covered, and why were they your favorite? Oh, my goodness. That is almost impossible to answer. That's why I asked um, the question, sir. It's a, it's a great question, Lawrence. I mean, I mean obviously, I, I have an affinity just for, like, we did training camps every year, and, I got to know guys that I'm still friends with to this day, like Lorenzo Alexander. I have a great relationship with Zoe because of my time as a reporter and his time as a member of the Washington football team. Uh, so you get to m- make those individual connections that then transcend beyond the sports, right? Um, but I would say, like, just some of the, the quirky things, like even in my time when I was getting quotes for, for Kornheiser and Wilbon and David Dupree and those guys – there was, a, there was Dennis Rodman. I'll never forget this encounter with Rodman. He's a member of the Spurs. He's got green hair. And again, I just got my you know, tape recorder then. I don't even have a camera yet. So my tape recorder. And I, they told us, the Spurs PR said, you know, Dennis doesn't talk to the media. I said, okay. You, you honor that to a degree. But then I see Dennis. He's out of the shower. He's got a towel on. He's got, kids don't know this, a Walkman on. Okay. And so he looks at me and he kind of pulls him off his ears. He goes, what's up? And I go, Hey, Dennis, you got a second to chat? And he goes, yeah, man, what do you want to know? And so I'm getting a one-on-one with Dennis Rodman in 1994. I mean, this is peak Rodman, right? He didn't go to the Bulls yet. And right as I asked my first question, PR runs in, barricades him off to me, arms extended, and says, Dennis isn't talking to me. Dennis isn't talking to me. And I go, but wait, but Dennis just, and then Dennis pulls his ears back off and he goes, Guess I'm not talking to the media. Puts him back on and walks away. Like those little moments in life, mm. I I cherish them because they're nobody ever knows them. But like they're just these quirky moments that you have with individuals. I had one with Isaiah J.R. Ryder, and I asked him a question. He was with the Timberwolves at the time, and I, my my pad question because it was Weber and Howard. They were just starting off with the Bullets then. I said, J.R., you're a veteran in this league. You know what's it like? Uh, what does it take to be a pro in this league and to learn how to win, which is what the bullets are trying to do. And he goes, man, I don't know the answer to that question, but I get up every day and I look in the mirror and I go, how can I make my teammates better today? How can I make somebody else, not just me better? And he gives me this answer that goes on for like three, four minutes, just me and J.R. Ryder. And I'm like, this guy is so misunderstood. Five days later, pops positive for weed. They kick him out of the league. Like it's like, like stuff like that. But the J.R. Ryder that I saw, I, I, I would die on a hill for that guy because of that moment in time 
that I had with that athlete. I've had him with Tiger Woods, right? I mean, Dave Feldman and I, back in our Channel 5 days, we had just me, Tiger, and, and Feldy. That's it. At Congressional in, in D.C. And just the three of us. And we're just hanging and just talking. And Feldy, I'll never forget it to this day. Feldy says to me after we go, like, I mean, look, we're excited. We just talked to Tiger Woods, right? And he goes, Saucy, he gets it. I mean, Tiger just gets it. And I'm like, yeah, you know, he really does. It couldn't have been two weeks later that the whole world changes and the sex scandal hits and he crashes his car and the nine iron in the back from, from Elon and the whole bit. And, I, and then I thought, no, he, he just fooled us. Like, I, I, I thought this was this incredible human being that we put on this pedestal. No, he's fallible just like me. And like those things and those moments in time and to see how the perceptions change of those people fascinate me. They absolutely fascinate me. I just, I'm, I guess I'm always fascinated, not just obviously athletes, but you know, it really doesn't have to be an athlete, but in, in our line of work, it traditionally is athletes that we talk to about their mental makeup. I, I, it just, it really, there's so many moments like the Tigers, like the JR, uh, like the JR Riders, um, like the Dennis Rodmans that I, go back on Floyd Mayweather's. I've had incredible talks with Floyd. And, you know, I know a lot of people think he's a bad guy and maybe he really is. But when I've interacted with them, I, I, I can't say that about him because of my personal interaction with them. So I, I'm always fascinated how the perception of a person might not be the reality of them. In 2013, you make a, a you, you take a gamble. <laughs> You're the man in D.C. Like, you're you're holding it down in D.C. What in the world made you say, let's let's just put all of that aside. I've, I've, been, in, I've been in this market for 15 years, busting my ass. What said, let's pick up and move to Chicago and, and, and go to a streaming outlet that's going to talk sports two minutes at a time? It's the same reason why I joined the Marine Corps. I wanted to take those training wheels off and stop being protected and see what else is out there. See what this world has to offer. See what Chicago has to offer. I'm an East Coaster my whole life, Lawrence. Now we're going to pack up. We're going to move to Chicago. And I'll never forget driving in and coming in on 94 and the Dan Ryan for the very first time on December 1st and seeing that flag that they have over there, the big American flag, or I think one of those warehouses when you come in from the South side. And I just thought, wow, this city is just jumping. It's just alive. I just, I, I love the feel of it. And oh, by the way, it was like 55 degrees. Oh, you got Man, fooled. Babies. It was talking about the weather. Blah, yeah. Blah, blah. Oh, you oh, got, got fooled. fooled. The next day, December 2013 in December, Lawrence, the next day on December 2nd, we had our, we, we did our 120 sports uh, opening, if you will, at Oprah Winfield's old studios. Okay. Uh, it hit like 25. And then I don't think we broke 30 for like three months. I mean, it, it was like the coldest winter. And I was like, oh, now I know exactly what everybody's talking about. I mean, they hit me hard on the Okidoke first day thinking this is going to be easy. Day two. And then I was like, I'll never forget telling my mom after a couple months, I know the difference between 17, 7, and negative 7. I mean, 7, I can unzip my jacket a little bit. 17, jacket's off. You kidding me? Negative seven, you're, you're, you're bundling all the way up. But, man, I was so excited just to see what 120 sports could be. Uh, I remember talking to my agent who, who I didn't know anything about this opportunity, Lawrence, in Chicago. 
And he just said, look, to some really smart people, probably way smarter than me, that are starting this new, really, this is, that was uncharted territory. Everybody does it now. But 2013, nobody did what we were attempting to do. And getting in with a collection of people, I didn't know anybody, Lawrence. I didn't know anybody in the city. I don't have family here. We're not Midwesterners, right? All my family and friends are back east. So I really did it. But because of my experience in the Marine Corps, I knew I could do it. I knew, like, you can do something that might feel uncomfortable. You can. And if anybody out there is looking at a career change and thinking, nah, stay in my comfort zone, I would always urge you to do the opposite. Get out of that comfort zone. Try something different. And again, you think we'd be having this conversation if I didn't move here? The, the people that I've met, some great friends uh, that, you know, like Danny Graves, still get to talk to him. Brian McFadden, you see him blowing up in, on his podcast. Tyler Jacobs, of course, at ESPN, like a brother. Timmy Doyle. I mean, there's so many people that we've had contacts. Kevin Egan now going to the WWE that we are now kind of family extended in all these different parts. And that's because of making a leap to get out of the local environment in DC and try something that's got a national brand. That really appealed to me, trying something grassroots that had never been done before and to see if we can make it stick. Now it didn't necessarily, but the tentacles are there. And we, we saw the offspring of what was started by 120 Sports. They were 100% right forms. about where yep. the, 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 the whole medium was going. Like they were a hundred percent right on what the industry was getting ready to do. I just always like, man, we, I wonder if we missed a couple of opportunities in, in developing it further because the idea was spot on. Oh, it was so ahead of its time. It, it, it really is. And I mean, Lawrence, obviously you were a huge part of that when we started the morning show. I mean, think about that. Start. You were our guy to help launch that baby. Like, let's go. Like, that was a huge deal for us. And I look at it like nothing, nothing ventured, nothing gained. That's for sure. But our people, our execs definitely had the pulse of, as you say, where it was headed. So maybe we were a little too ambitious because if you remember in those days, I mean, I was on the air till 2 a.m. Eastern every night. We were giving you eight hours of live programming. Michael Kim would do the first two hours. I would do the next two hours. Then Kimmer would leapfrog back to me and so forth until we took you all the way home at 2 a.m. And, you know, there's no, well, we have maybe a minute break. Yeah. And we're, we're going, man. I mean, you know, you needed to be able to be on your game. And if you didn't love sports, it was going to weed you out. And everybody that was there did. I mean, it, that was apparent. You had to love this job, love sports, because you were going to be inundated with it for, for, for me personally, at least four hours a day, a night, if you will, until all times of the morning, because we were trying to hit that West Coast audience and, you know, doing something nationally, again, versus something locally in D.C. is a completely different animal. And, you know, you got to know your audience. And we were trying to find ours in a space that had never been explored before. So I think we showed a lot of different groups the way of, of how to kind of venture into this new frontier. And I'm sure if you asked them and gave them truth serum, they'd all say 120 sports gave them the impetus to know how to go forward and maybe do it differently and better and maybe worse in some regards too. But at least the blueprint, we gave everybody the free blueprint to what you see today. What have you thought about the evolution of 120 kind of turning into stadium 
and the stuff that you've been doing over the last few years? It's different. It's look, I mean, of course I'm a company guy and I'm going to always, you know, I'm always going to be one, one of the guys that's going to be in it for the team success. Right. But I, I, I'd be lying to you Lawrence, if I said, I didn't miss the conversations on air that we used to have in the 120 uh, forum because shocker. I like to talk. I like to exchange ideas. <laughs> I, I like to hear other people's views and I like to give you mine. Right. I like truth. And when you have that much, like I, I always want more time, never less. And I feel like, you know, obviously we're truncated now and with COVID and, you know, we're trying to figure out how to, to go forward from here. I miss those days of just having honest conversations about sports, uh, fun conversations about sports with people that I, that I love and respect. And, and you're certainly included in that. And so stadiums still trying to figure out their place in this, you know, new TV world and, you know, being a dual platform and being, you know, over the air and also still being digital. That's a challenge. So how do you, how do you get the proper programming for one? Is it one size fits all? Now we've got the RSNs uh, coming in with Sinclair uh, being having a big stake in this thing, obviously. And, you know, there's a lot of mouths to feed on very different spectrums. So it's, look, I'm not a manager. And that's got to be a challenge every day to try to figure out how to navigate all those things uh, that are out there for stadium to plug and play, if you will. But, hey, man, for me, it's never subsided for me, which is the love of sports. It's been my first love. It's been my true love. My mother knows that when I'm working, I'm happy. How many people can say that? I feel blessed when I get to go in the office and people are like, man, you've never had, you never have a bad day. And I'm like, well, I'm not getting shot at today, which is always a good thing. And two, I'm talking sports with friends. I mean, come on, how hard can life truly be? Like, that's why I feel blessed. And not everybody gets the opportunity to do what we do, Lawrence, which is have these type of conversations with people that you like. So I would always challenge people, if, if you can find something that's going to make you genuinely happy to spend the better part of eight hours, or in our case, nine, 10 hours, like we used to do, that's a big chunk of your life. That's a big chunk of your real existence. And if you're not happy doing it, you got to do something about it. You got to find something that's going to make you happy. Because really, in the end, that's all this is. You've got to find your personal happiness. Government can't do it for you. Even your family and friends can't always do that for you. You're going to have to do that for yourself. So find whatever that is that motivates you, that puts a smile on your face when you go to work. And then if you can do that, you're not really working. Then you're just going to have a, a, a good time. You're going there to be professional and all those things. But really, it's fulfillment in your personal day-in, day-out interaction. And I have been fortunate most of my adult life to say, no matter what it's been, even in the Marine Corps, to find those people to gravitate to, to have real engaging conversations about whatever it might be. Predominantly for me, it's always been sports, but to have real open and honest conversations with people, you'll get so much daily enjoyment if you can just do that basic thing. I want to talk about the vibe at 120 because I think you're right. Like I honestly wasn't prepared for it. <laughs> Um, I, I loved it though. Like I really loved it because even though th what they were asking us to do at the beginning of the morning show was like impossible. Oh like it was, what time do you have to come in? What would you have to be in five? I, yeah. I think our meeting, our first meeting was at five. 
And I was doing the nighttime show at the score. So I wasn't getting That's off the number. air until 10 o'clock at night. And I was going home and turning around and and sleeping for six hours and getting up and, and going in and hanging out and being ready for the morning show. But what, what I, I loved about it is, like, when – I mean, I don't – I'm sure they don't have an award for this, but at some point they're going to, they're going to look back and be like, Oh my God, like Jordan Cornette, Shea Pepler Cornette, like look where they really like their career started to take off. Tyler, look at where his career like started to take off. BMAC, a guy transitioning oh. from not from playing to like all of these people that were under Laura Britt, like all these mm-hmm. people that were under our, our home over there I, it's so Ross is so it's so weird. I went over there the other day and it's so strange. yeah well where where we used to be it's like a library now yes, it's a library and there's a McDonald's like right like the McDonald's headquarters is right across the street and it's like I don't know if anyone would believe me if I told them the story of how there was a television station that was right here. It was right here. And when they they'd sold the building and you know all the moves over to the United Center and being at the United Center is dope. Like it's really cool. Mm-hmm. It's so strange to go over there and be like, man, I spent three years of my life coming over to this tele, like this little television station that popped up uh, right there off of Randolph, and now it's not there, and I can't even show it to people. But I, I wanted to ask you specifically about the vibe in that building as it pertains to your partnership with Tyler. Because I don't know, through, through, throughout the history of – Stadium slash 120. I don't know if two dudes were on a a better wavelength than you two. I think me and Kimmer come in a close second, but yeah. but I think you two forged a bond of brotherhood that's that was really cool to watch continue to develop. No question. All right, here's the deal with, with Shrammy, right? With that, for those that don't know, that's his nickname, Shram. And we're like, Shram, how'd you get that? It was given to him by a waitress when he's out with his high school boys in St. Louis, and she just mispronounced it. And then all the guys laughed and went, Shram, we're gonna call you Shram. That's how it stuck. It's a terrible nickname, but it fits for Tyler, right? Just he's just the quirky personality, and that's why I love him. We never did the same shows for the first couple of years at 120. He would always be on predominantly with Kimmer, and I would always uh, have Tim Doyle and uh, Dylan McGordy would kind of flip back and forth for those that remember those names from our 120 days. Uh, but Tyler and I just didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things when it came to sports. Certainly like Kobe, I'm never, never forget with, with Brian McFadden who loves Kobe Bryant. We would have these debates about who's closest to Jordan and BMAC and I were in the Kobe camp and Tyler didn't want to hear it. And he's trying to tell me that Kyrie Irving is going to be the greatest point guard in the history of point guard. Just ridiculous things that would come out of his mouth. <laughs> and so we would have, these kind of debates in between shows but one of us would have to go so they would always be like interrupted but they're like these parting shots as I'm walking out the door to go host and vice versa I'd shoot him at him when I know he couldn't retort because he didn't walk on set like it never stopped our conversations just kept going and so I'll never forget 120 is winding down and we're getting ready to go over to the United Center and begin this new thing called Stadium and Jason Coyle who's still our CEO he and I were at the, literally at the water cooler. And, and you know it well, the, the old uh, breakfast area, if you will, the cantina, as we called it, 
behind the green room at the one three right. days. And he, he asked me, he's like, do you have any ideas for a show? And I said, yeah. I said, you know, Tyler and I have this incredible chemistry and yet we never really get to show it on set because rarely do we work together. I really think it would be an interesting mix, kind of the old guy and the younger guy with our views of sports in the world, to be honest, and, and see if that meshes. And we did a whole presentation and a whole pitch uh, to guys like Josh Wine and Scott Diener, who were there at the time. And uh, they, they said, all right, let's go. Let's do this thing. And we called it Sauce and Shram. My nickname, Sauce, his nickname, Shram, because that was Shrammy's idea to use the nicknames because he wanted it to be like us in the green room. And so did I, of like just a natural conversation like we're having now, because we don't really need the camera. Like we just go and, and we're, we can be raw and we can get, I mean, you know this, we're like two dogs and a bone, and we do not want to give up that bone. We There's no doubt about that. I found myself refereeing quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> Just being like, Saucy, now listen, this is what he's trying to say. Be quiet, Tyler. Let me try to explain your point. <laughs> but it, but it's, it's, it was born of, of honesty and just the, the, the authenticity that I think we both brought to the show is why we hit it off. We did the show on stadium for better part of a year and a half before the pandemic and everything else. And, you know, to this day, if we, you know, we'll text or call, we'll be on the phone for an hour and a half arguing fun, but arguing because we just don't see the world the same way. And I love him for it. And I, I think he would say the same about me that we respect each other's views so much, but we don't necessarily have to agree all the time. And I think that's a, good healthy thing I, I don't want to be in the room with somebody I might have to do a show with that just agrees with everything I say and I also don't want it to be you know like a hot take thing where it's like well I just disagree with you to whatever you say I mean we have common areas that we see things eye to eye on but predominantly I'd say we view the world a different way even we talk off off air about politics Trammy and I couldn't be more different and yet I love him for his views because I know his heart's in the right spot so even though we might disagree on how to get there, I know where he's coming from. So I know that it's always from a good place. I don't think that and you guys are as different, though, politically as you assert. Oh, no. I think he is. I think he would be a down with socialism in, in his way, <laughs> in a good way. Because he and I have had this conversation where he's like, yeah, if it helps somebody else out, I'll give 60% of my paycheck. And I'm like, Tyler, I love what you're thinking. I love the mentality of that to help somebody else. The problem is you're going to entrust the government to do the right thing with your 60%. And that's where I have a problem. But, but see, that, that's what I mean, though. That's what out. I mean. That's why I don't think you guys are polar opposites, because I think that you both feel similarly about yeah. some of these issues. You're just trying to take different paths to get yes. to those places. Like, that's always been one of the things I've loved about talking with you about issues of race or, or politics that... I know where you're at, and, and I'm like, you know what? I'm not far. I'm not far from where, <laughs> where Rossi is at. I wonder if I can move him this way, and yeah, I can move yeah. a little bit this way, and maybe Absolutely. we can come up with some better ideas than some of the people that are in charge of getting us some ideas. And I love that. That's exactly what it should be about, open conversation to see that don't be stuck in your ways and your mentality. Tyler's switched my opinion many times, right? And I hope I've done the same. Also, not because of like, oh, I, I just want to agree with him on this one, so I'll, I'll give him the charity, I agree, check mark, right? 
because authentically he opened your eyes to something else that you might not have thought about before. And again, my Marine Corps experience certainly helped in those regards to see things through a different lens. And, you know, we translate that to sports all the time. I try to put myself in other people's shoes. It's hard to do unless you've really done it. It really is hard to do, but that's the practice. If you can get there, then I think you can find more commonality uh, in your in your debates, whether it be about sports or politics or life in general. I, I will say, when we get into some of these discussions about, like, say, Isaiah Thomas or Steph Curry, I just think he's wrong. Like, I just think he's flat wrong on some <laughs> – like, to me, great is great. It's always going to be great. Don't denigrate it because they play in a different era. And don't tell me they can't be great today in this game. It's why I ask everybody, like I talked to Bill Lennington the other day, Lawrence, and it was just, you know, I could just go for hours talking to quote unquote old timers about the game. I said, I said, Bill, one game, championship game, who's your point guard, Steph Curry or Isaiah Thomas? And he paused. And then he said, what are the rules? And I said, exactly. That's the right question to ask. Comparing eras, you also have to compare rules. And I try to tell Tyler that, that your numbers and everything you put into your little machine to calculate what is what, you can't calculate that. You can't calculate hand checking. You can't calculate getting drilled when you come down the lane and then see if you want to do it again. So like those are the type of debates where you won't move me on some of these things because I lived it, because I watched it, because I am old. And so it's not a get off my lawn Clint Eastwood moment, but it is, you've got to respect the way the game was played, certainly in football and basketball. Those are the two biggest changes that I've ever seen in my life, lifetime. Just the way the game is physically played and called. Baseball, not as much. Yeah, I think that's more comparable for generation to generation. Football and basketball, they're completely different games. I think that you and, and Tyler were ahead of the game when talking about the future of sports betting. Like, I remember mm-hmm. you two being some of the guys that, that were, like, out here saying, we need to do more of this. This is becoming a thing. We need to really get into this. And I, and I thought that you all both did a great job of taking the rest of us who weren't really sports bettors and, like, bringing us along and saying, mm-hmm. guys, you have no idea how huge this is going to be as the country opens up to this how did you see this coming well I, I look back on it certainly in 2013 when i came to chicago and you got to remember too and i know you do well but for the listeners just the climate then still it wasn't acceptable right gambling even as pervasive as it was and the nfl wouldn't be the nfl without gambling i mean we can just call that what it is and that's been from the 80s and they just kept it like this bad hidden secret right they didn't want to talk about it if you go back to like when i watched as a kid you know, we just saw the passing of Irv Cross. Like, Irv Cross was in my living room every Sunday with Jimmy the Greek and, and uh, you know, uh, Phyllis George and certainly Brent Musburger, who's my favorite broadcaster of all time. And if you remember, they didn't do the odds, but they had, like, a checklist, like a board, and it would be, like, intangibles would be the last one. Intangibles basically was telling the bettors, this is who you should bet on. And they would even couch it in discussions like Jimmy the Greek would say, well, you know, I think this game will be under a touchdown. Well, you knew what those spread was. So he's telling you how to bet without telling you how to bet because the NFL in America at large looked down on gambling. Like, oh, this is a big problem. 
Well, the, I mean, the cat's out of the bag. Everybody in sports pretty much either plays daily fantasy or wagers on a game in some way, shape, or form, right? And Tyler is a savant, and I mean that. Completely. He truly is. He really is. Like, he can run circles around me when it comes to, to daily fantasy and finding the value and plug and playing that into a lineup. I mean, he just studies it. He knows it. He lives it. I was more of the gambling guy that could kind of look at it like, well, you know, because I've been gambling in some form probably since I was 10 and kind of looking at lines. I used to do a thing, Lawrence, when I was really young in my 20s. Uh, I kept a football notebook uh, into my 20s. And I just would write down all the scores of the games. And then I started keeping the odds of well before it was ever, you know, uh, commonplace like it is today. And I got to the point where I would do the lines before the Vegas lines came out to see how close I could get. And that was like my way of handicapping these games. This is, I mean, I was a teenager when I was doing this stuff. So it's been a part of my football viewing, if you will, for the better part of 40 years now and you see how big business it is so i always thought when we came into this space which is again a new space in 2013 and maybe this is a wild wild west maybe this is a new frontier maybe this is something i don't know how regulation works and fcc and all those things but you see even today there's still some slippery slopes but most of those have been those stop signs have been taken down and pretty much it's all systems go now and people understand that gambling in sports, whether it's straight money lines or, you know, odds or daily fantasy, is it never going away? And now the leagues, you saw with Adam Silver and the NBA, they started to embrace it, which I thought was really smart. And that's something that we tried to do early on. We got some resistance, but I think now most of that resistance is gone. And again, not just because he's our boy, but if you watch Tyler on ESPN, uh, he, he just, he, this isn't something that he's just going up there and giving you a couple players. He studies this stuff. He wakes up with his coffee and he starts digging into the numbers. So I always kid him about the numbers, but you know, don't play this for him. I respect him for the work he actually puts in and the numbers that he puts in. I like to ridicule him for it, but it's actually out of love because I, I don't, I can't do that like he does. And he really does. So the ESPN viewer, like the 120 sports in the stadium uh, viewer, they were getting authentic, really numbers crunching the way that Tyler can only do it. And that is a real service in 2021 and beyond for anybody that plays daily fantasy and or potentially is a gambler. Where do you think the industry goes from here? Well, I, I, I didn't see this coming in 2013. Like that was new to me because I'm kind of a, you know, I don't want to say Joe Biden, Neanderthal here, but I'm kind of in the dark ages. I'm normally behind the times, not ahead of them. So when this came to the light of what it was, I remember meeting with the bosses and they kind of like, oh, you're just a sports guy. You really don't think out of the box when it comes to the industry. And I'm like, yep, that's you pretty much pegged me like you're not insulting me. Uh, so like, so what is the next frontier? That's, that's a real tough one because we've kind of done the podcast. We've kind of done the nonlinear. We, obviously, we still have the over the airwaves. Is there something else out there that we don't see? I'm sure there is, but I don't know what else it is. Lawrence. Like I still watch and enjoy watching shows on TV. I still do. I know I'm kind of archaic with that, 
yes, I'll listen to your podcast. I'll listen to people's pop- podcasts like Brian McFadden that I know and like because they're entertaining and engaging. But is that space eventually going to get played out? Does it always come back to TV? Does it is is TV always the fallback to mm. to what this industry is? Mm. I tend to think it is. I tend to think it's always the safest mechanism, the tried and true advertising dollar to get to your to your TV outlet. I don't know if that's going to wash up in some of the places that we currently reside in, but I, I do think it's a concern for the industry. I know Stadium. We're still trying to find our mark and, and how exactly uh, that gets manifested. But those are those are still 2021 challenges that I don't think have all been answered. And I don't know what the easy or correct answer will be. Saucy, I appreciate you taking all of this time to talk with me. And tell Man, you kidding me? Great stories and about about you being a Marine. And <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm really happy to know you because I've, I've enjoyed – like learning about what that life is like, like what, how, how you lived and what you went through and how proud you are of your experience of being a Marine. It, it you wear it. And I, and I, I respect the hell out of that, that you are like, yes, yeah, like, let me tell you about my life as a, a Marine and what it was like to, to be, have bullets flying at, over and at your head. Um, I, I appreciate you. And I think that, like I laugh now, like thinking about all of us back then, and I I just flipped over. I was looking at the Cubs game, and I flip over to ESPN, and there's Emily Kaplan. Like, like you know what I mean? Like we're all over the place. We're all over the place. Like it's it's that the graduates of 120 sports. Like that that group of people. That's a pretty impressive group. Well, you know, and I saw today on Twitter when we were all congratulating our buddy Kevin Egan for getting to the WWE. It, it is. It's a source of pride it, because we all did something that nobody had to do. Lawrence, you were established in Chicago. You're doing TV. You're doing radio. You're doing everything. You don't need 120 sports, right? Kevin Egan comes in. He's he's doing color for, for uh, crew games, I believe, at the time. And he's coming in, this soccer guy with a, with a funny accent. But just a nice guy. And, and I remember saying, who's Tim Doyle? And then everybody looked at me like the record scratch. Like, what? You don't know who Tim Doyle is? And then I quickly learned who Tim Doyle is. And everybody in the Big Ten area certainly knows who Timmy D is. And Brian McFadden, a two-time Super Bowl champion. And Ovin Mahaley, the highest paid fullback in the history of football when he joined forces with us. And, you know, the Laura Brits and the Auschwitz and the Chelsea Gates. And you, you name it, all the people that we had that came from literally all across the country. Yep. How fun is that? How Americana is that? That's truly the melting pot. We were just a living example of it. And so I'm with you, man. I, I do. I, I, I'm very thankful to have served in the Marine Corps. I'm so thankful everybody that serves in the armed forces today. You're right. I do wear it because I live it. And it, it's, it's a passion for me. But the same can be said about people I've worked with, whether it be at Fox 5 and certainly now 120 and Stadium Extended. I just want those people to be successful because for the most part, how lucky are we to have worked with the people we've worked with that are just good people? And that is very fortunate. So I feel like somebody looked out for me. So I want to look out for somebody else. And so when we see our people, I put in air quotes from 120, you know, branch out and blossom. I feel like that's us branching out and blossoming to a degree. And I think you're going to see more of that as time goes on, but, uh, Wherever we all go and wherever we end up, we all have that common bond. 
uh, being joined at 120, and, and that'll be there forever. Saucy, you are the best, sir. I appreciate you being a part of the podcast, and uh, and this was wonderful. We need to do it again. Anytime, my brother. Appreciate you, Al. So that's Dave Ross. Not to be confused with David Ross. It's different. But that's my dude, Dave Ross. He is, he is energy personified. He's a wonderful dude. Even when we disagree politically, he hears me out. Like, we talk about things. We talk through things. I actually think that, that the model for political discourse in our republic should be what Dave Ross and I do. But that's another story for another time. He's great, and I'm glad that he's continuing to have success with the folks over at Stadium. I'm so glad that Stadium itself is thriving because there's so many good people that were involved with that project, and it's hard to believe that that was seven years ago when those guys all moved here. And I've just made – one of the things I really liked about that place is that I've made really good, like, relationships with people there. I talk about it a lot, like this concept that I'm so I'm some sort of like lone wolf because I do a solo show and I really like the feeling of being a team. Like you should see how I react when I run into Michael Kim or into Laura Britt. Like it's it feels like a family. Like I, we we felt like we went through something together. And I'll always appreciate that crazy time in my life when I was doing a nighttime show and a morning show five days a week. I did that for two years. Like, are you crazy? For two years. But whether it was Chelsea Gates or Tyler or or Saucy, Danny Graves, like we had this, that's how I met Anthony Heron. Anthony Heron was one of the experts over there, one of the college football people. And I was like, I feel like I know you from somewhere. He's like, well, I'm from Bolingbrook. And he's like, I listen to the score all the time. So I met Anthony Heron at 120. Emily Kaplan, like our roster was, man, the people that went on to do stuff out of 120, like it was, it's a pretty good lineup of people that were able to figure some things out even I I, like I told Saucy like I felt like it was ahead of its time and what it was trying to accomplish and I always look forward to any collection or combination of those people that I worked with at 120 whether we're talking about management producers or talent I would jump at the opportunity to work with again that's how well I was treated there, and I really loved the challenge of that. And I loved working and, and getting to know people like Saucy. Like, those are the folks that did the Pooh documentary. Like, that's where we did it. We did it out of stadium. You know, Scott Diener and that whole crew, like, they put that together, and I can't believe, like, I'll tell you how crazy it is. We ended up doing, when the Pooh documentary came out, and what's what's really weird is even after you know I had moved on and and they had moved on they would ask me back to do stuff and the poo documentary was one of them so I'm sitting there 
And they said, we want to do this show. And I was like, what kind of show? We want to talk about the Pooh documentary after it airs. And we'd like for you to be here. And I said, okay, great. Like, you and Tyler are going to host it. And our analysts were Tom Thibodeau and John Calipari. So we're sitting there listening to those two guys, like, talk about D-Rose and talk about basketball. It was one of the most amazing events of my life. You know what? I need to get Diener on the podcast. Like, we should talk about that project and how it all came together. I don't know if it, I don't think it had a podcast component, so maybe I'll do the, the podcast component for it. Our sponsors are great. We're brought to you by Zenny. Go get some frames, zenny.com. Thanks to David Hochberg, too. We appreciate David Hochberg and all of the things that he does for this podcast. And if you are buying or refinancing, he's the person that you want to call. 855-56-DAVID. That's right. Or go to 56david.com and he can help you. Like, it's, it's a smart play. Like, just call the dude. I promise you. Just call him and talk to him. He will help you work through some things, and he helped me work through a lot of stuff over the last few years on, on the real estate side. Oh, and my man Brendan Studzinski, the state farm agent in Lincoln Park, chicagosf.com. Go there, get a quote, and $10 is donated to Pause Chicago. He should be your agent, period, paragraph. I am waiting on the paper now. It's so weird, like, when you go through contract negotiations, like, I'm waiting on, like, I think that everything has been agreed to. I think that that's where we're at with my contract with the score, that everything has been agreed to, and now it's just, it has to be put on paper, and that process takes a few days. Like, we're running out of time. Like, my contract is is theoretically up on the 31st of March, but we'll see. I'm, I don't foresee any issues. I think everyone is happy with what we came up with, which is weird. That almost never happens in a negotiation. Like, when you can look at the other side and they can look at you and go, eh, yeah, I can live with this. And there are no, like, hard feelings or anything like that. So... I'm looking forward to signing it once it – I think my agent had, like, a slight, like, language problem with something. But I look forward to signing it once he gets over his his language problem with it. But that's why you pay people like that. We have to do – we have to do an episode on agents. I'm going to do that, too. So I got two things. Let me write that down. Pooh documentary and agents. Because I get asked about whether or not people should have agents, and I think that there there definitely is a reason to get an agent once you get to a certain point. But I'll talk about that on a later episode of the pod. Thanks again for your support. It means the world to me. If you have not subscribed, and you just listened to this episode, please subscribe. Subscribe so you get the downloads like immediately. Like they just were there for you episode after episode. Do us a favor. We have a really good count of reviews. And I appreciate it. Would you go and just give us five stars and write a review? 
you you won't believe this, but that actually matters. You know how people think that they listen to the radio and that is a rating for me? That's not how the rating system works. But in podcasts, your reviews and your five stars actually do matter. So if you could go do that for me, that would be dope. I, I can tell you that I have completed the next three episodes, the next three interviews for House of L, and they're killer. Absolutely killer. I hope you enjoyed this one. The rest of them are going to be just as good. Check out Maddie Lee's episode with Ryan Divish. Check out the Sports Adjacent podcast and subscribe to that too. I will see you next time. Peace. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.